So on a kind of a fun side note, I don't know if it's a side note, I guess it is. Uh, so two years ago, we, we moved in, like today or tomorrow, I think it was the third. So almost two years ago today, we, we moved in to our house, and then a year ago today, we met Caleb. In time, today, we met Caleb, right? It was a year, today. On the first, is the first time we actually saw Caleb. He, he's our, um, our son that we've adopted from Thailand, if you're not aware of that. And so this time of year seems to be a big season for us, so lots of celebration. My wife and I had the privilege of going to an adoption conference uh, the last couple days. She almost didn't make it. So some of you saw the, the Facebook request. My wife is very sick, pray a lot, and, uh, but we did make it, uh, I think, primarily because of your prayers, so thank you for that. My mom was able to come in. She watched the kids, gave us some freedom while she uh, was attacked, Um, but she survived, so that is good. Another reason to celebrate, Um, but glad you're here today, and yeah, it's been good. Glad glad Rob is here with CEF, glad just the way uh, we were able to worship through music. Um, We've gone through 1 Thessalonians, so we kind of uh, closed uh, chapter 5 last week. We're going back to the book of Luke. We've been in the book of Luke for quite some time, kind of off and on. We're back in the book of Luke, chapter 10 today. And we're continuing to look at, the series, or look at this theme called serving. All throughout 2015, we're focusing on what does it mean to be a servant? Now, when we talk about serving others, we're not talking about um, just doing good works to pay God back to somehow earn our salvation, but rather when we talk about being a servant and serving others, we say that Jesus came to serve us. He came as a servant, and now by faith in him, we become servants. So as we serve others, that is the overflow of our hearts in Christ. That's what it is to live out our identity in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at a parable that many of you know quite well. Some of you may not, but it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing this one. I want us just to dig in because this is a really neat parable. I'm excited about it. Uh, So one thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's Word. So I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. Um, It's not too long, but if you need to sit down throughout it, feel free to do that. We're going to start in verse 25, and we'll go to verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set on him his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's, let's pray. Father, be with us now as we open your word. May our familiarity with this text not cloud our understanding and what you will do in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that by your spirit, awaken our hearts, open our eyes, Give us ears to hear your word, that our hearts would be changed and transformed, that we'd become more like you today. God, I pray that you expose sin in our hearts. Show us areas that we need to repent of, areas that we are not, uh, areas that we are holding on to, areas of idols in our life, that we would repent, 
turning to you, trusting in you, depending upon your grace, that we would live and be servants in this world as you came as a servant to serve us. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So today we're going to kind of just walk through this text. Um, The outline I have, I think, kind of just does that for us. Um, So we begin, a lawyer attempts to test Jesus. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, of course, is meaning salvation, forgiveness of sins, entrance into the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus turns the question around and he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, don't glance over that too, too quickly. Some people today think the Old Testament is not very applicable. Some people today think we should just jump into the New Testament only. Um, but Jesus seems to infer that from the Old Testament, you can rightly understand how one is going to gain eternal life. Jesus uses the Old Testament. Paul used the Old Testament. Peter used the Old Testament. The Old Testament is used to preach about Christ, um, and we need the Old Testament today. So, so don't miss that. Now we have the lawyer, and he's going to answer correctly. He's going to um, answer from two Old Testament books. And he responds from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. And from Deuteronomy 6, the lawyer is going to quote the Shema. Now, let's just put this in context. The Ten Commandments is the summary of the entire law. Okay, The Shema is the summary of the Ten Commandments. So when you come to this portion, this is like the essence of the entire Old Testament. And there the lawyer says, well, we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your, all your strength, and all your mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, and he says that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus says, great, go and do. This, this, is, this is correct. You have answered correctly. Verse 28, uh, Jesus says, you've answered this, do this, and you will live. In, in another section, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is approached by another lawyer, again wanting to test Jesus. And the lawyer in Matthew 22 says, what is the greatest commandment? And do you know what Jesus responds with? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So here we have the greatest commandments in the Bible. These are the commandments that will lead us to eternal life. These are the commandments that Jesus answers and says are the most important. These are the ones that the lawyer rightly understands and says that this is the way that we will have eternal life. Um, and when we talk about heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're not supposed to be like, all right, now how do I love God with all my strength? And how do I do it with all my mind? And try to break it down as if they're separate from each other. But the whole idea is that it's total devotion to God. We're talking about our entire body, everything about us. Just as every inch of creation screams and testifies that God is creator and Lord of all, so every atom Every molecule, every nucleus of our body is to shout out that God is Lord of all. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what we see is that the litmus test of knowing that we love God, that our lives are fully devoted to him, is that we we love others. We love others as ourselves, even. And I want to encourage you, uh, we don't have time today to read the entire book of 1 John. But I want to encourage you, pick up the book of 1 John. It's towards the end of your Bibles. It's about five chapters. You'll see the word love, I think, around 46 times in that book. And the whole idea is that Christ has come uh, to love us and that we now love others. And it's a powerful just book about how we love one another. So I want to encourage you uh, to do that. Maybe you're trying to figure out your next book to go into in your Bible reading plan. Um, Pick up 1 John. Good. It it talks about what we're talking about here today. So, what should the lawyer do at this moment? He's asked, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you think? He says, love God with everything. Love your neighbor. So what's the next step? If he really understood the law, then he would know the law is not an end in itself, but rather it is a means to an end, which... What I mean is, the law is, is not the gamma radiation that makes us turn to the Hulk. Remember that? Anyone know the Hulk? Any Avengers fans here? Okay, we are superhero people in my family. We have a ton of superhero costumes. So uh, if you want to know anything about superheroes, you can come talk to me later. That's probably my uh, second specialty. 
made my first specialty, uh, and it is my kids too. So the law is not meant to be the gamma radiation that turns us into the Incredible Hulk. It's not the secret serum that Steve Rogers gets that you know who Steve Rogers is, right? Captain America. We need to do some education here. We'll do some film movies coming up. Um, but it's not that. It, when we read the law, it's not, oh, wow. You know, he goes into the chamber. The scrawny kid comes out like we all want to look like men, you know. Um, the law is not given to us. So we'd go, great, I can do that. No problem. But rather, um, we, we have the law so we realize, wait a minute, we, we cannot do that. Reading God's word is not to make us more confident in our ability, but it's to make us more dependent upon God's grace. This is key. It's not given to us so we would read and go, I got this, but it's, I need the grace of God here. I mean, think about this. James 2.10. Guys, we're in the book of James, Every Man Shepherd. We meet first and third Tuesdays. I'm going to plug this again a little bit. We meet in this room. That's this coming Tuesday. We're going through the book of James, and we're just walking through it. In James chapter 2, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, guys, we come across the passage, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part, in one point, has become accountable to all of it. Law is high demand. It says you've got to keep every single part But if you fail, at the smallest part, you fail everything. So the first point we come across in this parable is that um, man cannot accomplish the commands of God. We cannot accomplish the commands of God. Now the lawyer does understand that this is a very high command. Therefore, he needs to figure out how to make it more manageable, which leads us to the next question. And the lawyer here is going to justify himself. Verse 29, the lawyer asks, and who is my neighbor? This is a good question, right? This is a really good question. If the litmus test that I love God with everything is that I love my neighbor, what's the next best question? Who's my neighbor? I need to know, do I love this guy or do I not? I need to know. And he's asking this to justify himself. Don't miss these key words. He's testing Jesus. He's justifying himself. The lawyer is not here necessarily to um, demonstrate his faith, his love for God. He's coming here to to, um, justify himself, to put Jesus to the test so that he looks good. So the lawyer knows the command is high. Love God with everything and then uh, love our neighbor. So he figures, if he can ask the question, who is my neighbor? He's going to limit the scope of who God's calling him to love. He's going to find out who his neighbors are and who his non-neighbors are. In other words, who does he love and who does he not love? That's what he wants to know. He wants to limit it so it's manageable. Now, if we were to read some, um, some ancient texts from around the 2nd, 3rd B.C. or in the 1st century, uh, if we were to read some writings from Josephus, who was a historian, um, we would see that a common thought among Jews is that you love Jews, you hate non-Jews. It was a common thought. And among Jews, we love those who are respectable and good, but those who are not respectable and good, we're not called necessarily to have to love them. That was a common understanding. But if you're a Gentile, if you're a pagan, meaning non-Jew, then uh, it's okay if we despise you, reject you, and hate you. So the lawyer is very much wanting Jesus to say, well, you're to love your Jewish family. Or maybe you're to love those of the same ethnic, social, economic status as you are. Maybe he's hoping Jesus is going to say, love those who who are like you. Now, wouldn't this make Christianity easier? I just want you to think about this. Imagine if Jesus said, well, just, just love those who are like you. Love those who are easy. I mean, think about it. We, we could almost become like Santa Claus. And we could have like, like the good list and the naughty list. And if you make the good list, I will love you. The good list is small, right? Like it's small, it's manageable, put it in my back pocket. The naughty list, it's kind of like, we, we need the iPad now because it's digital and we don't carry notebooks, but it's thick. So it's going to take megabytes. Hopefully we all know megabytes. Um, so the whole point is he's trying to limit it down. Now, some of you actually right now are going, yep, I can make a list. That's not the point here. Don't make a list of who you wouldn't love. Please don't. Um, But think about this. Let's say Jesus did that. Let's say Jesus comes and says, why don't you just love your family, blood family? 
blood family. Because we know that in Christ we're all family as members of the body of Christ. But let's just say blood family, you know, the husband, wife, uh, and, and kids there. Would that make you feel better? Think about this. Honestly, husbands, do you love your wives? And, and wives, you can testify. Um, do, wives, husbands, do you love your wives so much that it's as Christ loves the church all the time? Is your love for your wife in such a way that constantly the world is going, how does he love her in such an amazing way? He is fully devoted to her in, a, in an expression of his devotion to God. Wives, do you perfectly submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ all the time in such a way that the world's going, her submission all the time. This is amazing. Never, never does she not do that. If we go to kids, most of the kids are downstairs, and I know that they would perfectly respect you at all times of the day as parents, right? Sometimes. And parents, but of course, We raise them perfectly and totally demonstrate the Father's love to them constantly, right? I mean, if Jesus limited the commands, does it really make it more palatable, more manageable for us? I mean, in all honesty, we don't love perfectly our wives, our husbands, our kids. James tells us, again, book of James, I love the book of James, that we war against one another. We fight against each other because we have sinful desires in our own hearts. And we, at times, fall prey to those sinful desires. And when that happens, we quarrel among one another. So our second point is that because of man's sin, we will always try to water down the commands of God. We'll try to make them palatable. We're going to water them down. We're going to make them manageable. So now, Jesus is going to answer this question. You want to know who your neighbor is? Oh, let let me show you who your neighbor is. And so this is where we come to the parable. Now, many of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, so we're going to have a parable, we're going to have a question, and then we're going to have a command. So the parable, we have a man, a Jewish man, going from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that's about a 17-mile road. It's about a 3,300-foot elevation drop, and it's a dangerous place to be. Among this road, there's, there's rocks, there's caverns, there's places for thieves to hide it's kind of like being in downtown Detroit at midnight, walking in the alleys. It's not safe. You're going to find trouble. Trouble will find you. This is not the G and PG road here that you take your kids on. This isn't the afternoon stroll. This is kind of, this is the PG-13 R-rated road where danger is always lurking. It's always, always lurking. And so as Jesus is giving this parable... Don't miss this. The people who are listening to him are going to be tracking with him. In fact, they're going to go, I just read in the Jerusalem uh, Newsette. Newsette? Gazette. Gazette. There's not a Newsette. There's a Gazette. Um, and like, they were going to be like, we just read about this story. We just read about a guy who was on the road, and he was mugged. He was beaten. He was left half dead. So as they're hearing this, this is all a story that they're able to relate to, to connect to. We then see a priest and a Levite. And they're going to come, and they're going to see this man who's been beaten, who's half dead, laid naked. Um, And they're going to see him. They're going to avoid him. They're going to ignore him. And they're going to keep going on their way. Now, a priest was like the Jewish nobility, representing the upper stratum of Jewish society. I mean, they're, they're just... I mean, these are the people that they walk around and you just kind of, you know, make eye contact with them. They have the nice chariots, um, nice donkeys, those kind of things. Um, they're, they're ones who everyone else looks up to. Levites, a little bit lower than them. They still work within the temple setting. Um, they have other duties like watching the gate, um, musicians, and other things as well. But both of them are used to lead the people of God, the Jews, into worshiping God. They were seen as the religious elite. And both of them ignore the man. Both of them ignore him. And why do they ignore him? Well, if, they, if he was dead and they touched him, they would have been unclean for seven days. Maybe that's why. Um, maybe they were not sure if he was a Jew. He was face down. They didn't know if he was circumcised or not. You know, So they're like, ah, well, I don't really want to touch. Um, they didn't know if he was a good person or a bad person. If he's good, we'd help him, but we don't know. He could probably be bad. After all, bad things usually happen to bad people. At least that's probably what they're thinking. But just notice, he doesn't give us the reason. 
And it's good he doesn't give us the reason because this makes it applicable to all of us at all times. But we know the real reason, don't we? Let's go back to the commands. Love God with everything, and the evidence that we love God with everything is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So what's the reason that they don't love him? This is where we do interaction. They don't love who? God. They don't love God. That's why. Ultimately, do not love God, which is why they do not love this man. Now, this, this moment, the audience is poised and ready for what's going to happen next. Obviously, the upper stratum was not able to serve this guy. So in comes the middle to low class Jew who's going to come in, be the, be, you know, the rescue of the Steve Rogers. He's going to come in, Captain America, tracking. Um, he's going to come in and he is going to save the day. But that's not what happens. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. That's like, doesn't even phase us as we say this, but let me, let me give a moment and give a little bit of history because Jews and Samaritans are bitter, bitter enemies. In about 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, was destroyed by Assyria. Many of them were taken captive and spread throughout uh, many regions. A small group was left in the northern land, and Assyria brought in people from Kutha, Babylon, and Hamath to intermarry with them. So if you have a pure breed dog and another pure breed dog and you mix them, what do you get? A mutt. You get a mixed breed. And so now this is what has happened. You have the purebred Jews now mixed with these other nations. And now you have this mutt. This is how the Jews look at them. And, and that what they've done is they've also now, because uh, they are combined with these pagan people, with their pagan worship styles, they attached paganism and idolatry to the worship of Yahweh, which is the God of Israel, and they combined them together. So now we have a mutt-like people worshiping the, in a mutt-like way, and so the, the Jews considered these people worse than dogs. And in fact, they considered killing them ethnic cleansing. This is the way it was presented. They were bitter enemies. The Samaritans in about 6 AD, um, they snuck into the Jerusalem temple during Passover. They took human bones. They spread them throughout everywhere. And what does human bones do? Make everything unclean. So what does that do to the Passover? Cancels the Passover. Everyone has to leave the Jerusalem temple. I mean, there is bitter bitter war going on between these two people. It's kind of like if we were to go back to the 1950s between black and white and the violence that was being done in such a public way. That's the way it is between Jews and Samaritans. So the point Jesus is making is this most unlikely person comes here and he has compassion on a Jew on the man who has been beaten. In fact, he bounds him up, binds him up, he puts oil in his wounds, sets him on his animal, takes him to an inn, gives two denarii. Now a denarii is about three weeks worth of food. So this is a substantial amount of money. And the Samaritan then says, I'll come back and I'll pay whatever else it takes place. He didn't worry about becoming unclean. The Samaritan gave extravagantly of himself he didn't just check the guy's pulse, say he's okay. He put him on his animal. He used his own resources. It took time, money, and energy to help this man. All three saw, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. But only one responded. Only one responded. So now, in verse 36, Jesus says, we come to the question, which of these proved to be a neighbor? Now, the answer is obvious. Even all the Jews who are sitting there going, I don't really want to say the S word, but we have to say the S word, the Samaritan. Some of you were thinking I was going to say something else. It's the Samaritan. He was the one who came and showed compassion. But notice this question. It's not the original question. The lawyer said, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, who proved to be a neighbor? Now, this isn't like just a mix-up, and it's not something that we're supposed to read over. This is a big difference. The lawyer's question was asked from a position of superiority. He wanted to justify himself. 
He wanted to limit the scope of God's command. He was wanting to make it more palatable. He wanted to know who was worthy of his efforts. He wanted to water down the commands of God so he knew who to love and who not to love. But Jesus turns the question upside down by asking who was the neighbor because a neighbor is the one who helps others. A neighbor is the one who does not look down upon others but has compassion on them. A neighbor doesn't try to limit whom he will help, but he serves all whom he encounters. Listen to this uh, quote. It's from um, uh, one of the theologians. He says, the parable clearly defines neighbor and love so as to exclude the possibility that there be a non-neighbor who we may ignore. There is no needy person whom I may encounter that I may bypass because he is not my neighbor. Everyone is my neighbor. The requirement to love transcends the categories of race, religion, nationality, or ethnicity. It is boundless, extending to every member of the human race of whose needs I am aware of. You see that? We're not on the same plane as a lawyer anymore. We're talking about a way different way of being a neighbor. Now, we have to be careful here. The lawyer misunderstood the commands of God's word, trying to limit whom he would love. And we can misunderstand this parable also. So Jesus is not given this parable. So now we go, oh, so I'm supposed to help those whom I wouldn't normally help. I'm supposed to help the guy that doesn't really like me. Okay, I got this. Great. Now I know what to do. That's not the point of the parable. I mean, think about it. Do we not have a hard time loving our own families? Loving those whom we do say that we love? Now Jesus says, you want to know who your neighbor is? You're to be a neighbor to your most bitter enemy. You're to love the person who hates you. And not in just words, but of time, energy, resource, and sacrifice. This parable is screaming for our need for God's grace. This parable is not just simply saying, well, just, just love this way, and now you'll be the good neighbor. But it's screaming, you need the grace of God. This parable is meant to humble us that we would see our sin and see our inability to love the way that God is calling us to love. And that we need to be forgiven and made new. And this brings us to the next point. God's word reveals our need for his grace. And how has God given us his grace? Through Jesus Christ. When we look at the life of Jesus, you realize that Jesus is the good Samaritan. I mean, think about this. It's out of love for God and us He left heaven and came to earth to be born as a man and to live a life here. Romans tells us he came when we were his bitter enemies, when we did not love him and when we did not want him. While on earth, Jesus did not worry about what was clean and unclean. He loved the prostitutes. He touched the lepers, the poor. He embraced the dead, even raised some back to life. He was a neighbor to everyone he encountered. But most importantly, he demonstrates his neighborness, neighborliness, it's a fun word, by going to the cross and dying on it for us, that we who believe in him would become new, forgiven. See, Jesus just, he didn't even stop at giving time, money, energy, and resources, but he gave his life so we could have life. You see how this good Samaritan ultimately points to the good Samaritan? Jesus held nothing back. His love for the Father is clearly seen at the cross. The good Samaritan, his love is clearly seen in that he stops. And what the Levites and the priests did not do, he loves this man out of his love for God. And the good news is, is if we believe in Jesus, not only are we forgiven, we're made new, but we are given his spirit that we would live like Jesus. See, one thing we saw a long time ago in the book of Luke is that Jesus is empowered by the Spirit that he would 
heal, that he would do miracles, that he would preach the kingdom, that he would live life here on earth. And guess what? When we believe in him, the same spirit dwells in us. So just as Jesus came to serve, we would come as servants to serve. This means we do not serve others to be acceptable to God. We serve others because we are accepted by God. We serve those who do not love us because Christ came and served us when we did not love him. We give in abundance to those in need because Christ gave in abundance to us. He gave everything for us. We serve all whom we can because that is the natural expression of our faith in Jesus. You see, being a neighbor is not to be a chore. It is not to be an event. Like we do uh, the soup kitchen, love that. Love that. We need to sign up. There's actually more spaces for um, April, so go sign up on those. But if we look back and say, well, my neighborliness is demonstrated at two times a year. I serve at the soup kitchen. We miss the point. Being a servant of Christ is a lifestyle. It's regularly walking and saying, who has God placed in my path that I could love and meet the needs of? Serving is a lifestyle because of who we are in Christ. So now we come to the command. At the end of verse 37, Jesus gives two commands. Go and do. Those are two commands. Go and do likewise. So the command is clear. As Christians... Jesus is showing that he is the good Samaritan, how he has loved us. And now because we have his spirit, he says, go and do likewise. It's black and white. We cannot miss this. If you came in here today as a believer and you're like, well, I'm not really sure if I'm supposed to love people and serve people. No longer can you claim ignorance. It's clear. We love others and serve them as the expression of our full devotion to God. So I want to spend the rest of the time, where do we even start? How do we do this? Because I, I, think, I think it's a good place. Where do we start? Where do we begin? So these are, I think, the remaining blanks. Number one, repent. It starts out with repent. Why do I say this? Um, notice who the lawyer is. Lawyer is a person who, who comes up to Christ and he knows the word of God. In fact, he has it memorized. Probably has a lot of the Old Testament memorized. Probably has more than any of you and I, any of you and I, you, any of us have memorized. He would be someone that could easily probably move in here in the church. And he would sit. And when he spoke, we'd go, wow, oh, he sounds so eloquent. I love what he says. And probably because of his knowledge of the scripture, many of us would say, Man, obviously, He's saved. Obviously, he should be an elder. Obviously, he should be a leader. So he's probably thinking he's saved. And others of us, because of his sheer knowledge, thinks that he is saved also. But the problem is that all the information he has has never led to transformation in his life. It's rather filled him with pride rather than humility. And this is a dangerous place for us. Because it is easy to gather with the church here in America. It is easy. And if you don't like one church, well, I'll just go to another church. And they'll just accept me and assume I'm a Christian because I carry a Bible. And I wear a tie. I don't know. Maybe Christians wear ties. I don't. Um, but it's easy for us to think that we're saved. It's easy for other people to think that we're saved. Um, but the first step is we have to repent of of our sins and come to realize that Christ came to save us because we cannot fulfill the commands of God. And, and this repentance is not step one and then we never do it again, but it's, um, it's the constant thing we do in our Christian life. We're called to regularly repent of our lovelessness because not only are we loveless before we come to know Christ, but because we still have sinful desires, a sinful nature still wants to wage war against us, at times we give in to it, there's times we're not loving. I don't think we have to give lots of examples. I mean, you probably just think about this last week. Were you loving with your wife? Were you loving with your kids? Were you loving with your husband? Were you loving with your coworker? Were you loving with the neighbor? We all go, yep, I fall short there. I fall short there. We're to be constantly repenting. Um, I want to just to take a moment. Think. How have you been serving? Or, or maybe better ask, 
Whom have you been serving? Just, just think, what's the names? Think about that. This week, again, Every Man Shepherd, this is my second plug. I think this is my last plug. We're meeting here Tuesday, 7 o'clock. We're going through James. And this week in James, we're going to come across the section that says, um, Faith without works is dead. I think that's a perfect commentary on the Shema and on Leviticus, which is quoted here. Love God with everything. And then the, uh, the natural overflow of that is that we love our neighbor. Love, um, faith without works is dead. If we don't love our neighbor, then we're not loving our others. If you say you have faith, but there's no works, you don't really have faith. Because it's the natural expression. Our works are the natural expression of our faith. Our love and service for others is the tangible expression. And it needs to be tangible expression of our love for God. And many of you know this. If you're around Christians, one of the things that you will hear is oftentimes people are boasting of their faith. But really it's more like their parents' faith. They will say, you talk to them about their testimony. Well, I was born in the church. I was born with the Bible in the hand, sitting in the pew. That's where I was. I've always grown up in church. I know, the, I know the Word of God. I've lived there. I know the ins and outs of what church life is like. But you know something's always kind of missing? Like, well, did you ever believe? Have you ever had repentance? Look, you don't inherit your parents' faith. The only faith you inherit is dead faith. This is the only faith you inherit is dead faith. Look, just because you're in church doesn't make you a Christian. Because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. You might know every single... Anyone like swimming? Any swimmers? Swimming's fun. I like to swim. You might know every single stroke that there is. And you might know the dynamics of every stroke, the physiology, the kinesiology uh, of every single stroke. You might know the perfect way to dive into a pool. You might know the perfect way to like, hold your hand and cup as you're going through the water. But look, that doesn't mean you can swim. You're still going to sink if you can't actually swim. And you might know all the verses in the Bible. And you might have been with us or in some other church for your entire life, but until the moment you actually repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you do not know God. So the first thing we need to do is just repent and regularly repent. We don't regularly repent so we stay Christians. We regularly repent because that is what it is to be a Christian, a life of repentance, looking at where sin comes on and removing that. So first we need to repent. Next we need to love the gospel. What do I mean? I mean the gospel narrative from Genesis to Revelation. We need to know that God made us. And we're made in his image. Do you know that? You're made in the image of God. Every believer and non-believer has been made in the image of God. And that's one reason why we love everyone we encounter. Because they're made in God's image. But because of sin, it separates us from him. And then as we look throughout the Old Testament, we see that God chooses a people. We see his faithfulness, his righteousness, eventually bringing forth Jesus Christ, that he would redeem all who believe in him, giving us new life, and then promising us that we will live with him forever, and that he will lavish his grace upon us forever for all eternity. Um, what you'll find is that you, as you grow in the gospel, and I don't mean information like the lawyer, but transformation as in Christ, as you grow in your understanding of the gospel, what you'll see is that you not only grow in your love for God, but you grow in your love for others. You'll find that you have great joy in serving because the Spirit produces joy in you. Listen, the Good Samaritan, as he put him on the, the donkey, he wasn't complaining. I mean, I thought walk next to my donkey now. I hate that I'm serving this guy. And when he gets to the hospital, he wasn't going, two denarii throws it down. He does so with joy. And we know he does because the Good Samaritan points us to Christ. And Hebrews tells us it's with great joy he goes to the cross for us. It's with joy Christ served. And because the same Spirit is in us producing joy, we also will serve out of joy for others because we grow in our love for god we'll grow in our love for others so next look at those around you now some of you at this point are probably thinking 
I don't really know many needy people. I don't think there's really many needy people around me that need to be served. So I'm just going to make this easy. I refer back to point one, repent. Then number two, the gospel. Um, Because there are needy people. And the fact that you don't see them means you need to repent. Because your eyes aren't open. You're not seeing people as Christ sees people. You're seeing people as the lawyer sees people. Um, That's something we regularly need to do. We need to begin looking. Listen, your elderly neighbor needs someone to help them keep up with their yard work. They need someone to help take care of their house. They need encouragement. The young mom down the street needs someone to give free, free child care so she doesn't keep pulling her hair out and figuring out, how am I going to do errands? How am I going to do everything else? She needs someone to love her. Your coworker needs help with their marriage. They're struggling right now. There are people all around you. As you begin to look, you're going to see them. Here in Olympia, we have a ton of homeless people. One thing Steph and I were trying to work on, we haven't done it super well yet, but we're wanting to take out a certain amount of money that we have each, each month that when we see homeless people, we can stop our cars and take them somewhere and eat. Not just give them money, but we want to take them somewhere because I want Ben or Hannah or Caleb and myself to see that when we serve, it takes time. It takes energy. It takes resources. So how do we engage with them? Now, I will say this. Being a neighbor doesn't mean we wait for people to come ask us. The half-dead guy wasn't asking anyone for help. When Jesus came, nobody asked him to die on the cross, right? He came when we hated him. Look, people aren't going to ask you to help. This is where we must be involved with them, and we need to be proactive in serving. Um, And we need to place ourselves in situations that we can serve. Some of you, you might actually be in a place where there's not a lot of visible needs. How are you placing yourself in situations where there are needs, where there are places where you can regularly be needing the needs of others? I was in a conversation, actually several conversations this week, um, especially at the adoption conference, where people were talking about their desire to move into low-income housing areas, that they would be in an area where there were more evident needs where they could begin meeting them. That's a work of the Spirit. Some people were talking about um, we're wanting to make our home even more available, so we're going to um, you know, open up rooms, we're going to inconvenience ourselves so we can have people living inside our house more. And these are people that already have like six kids. And they're like, we'll make room for three more kids. And I'm like, really? Like, how do you do that? Um, But those were testimonies that Steph and I were hearing all weekend of just people who began serving others. And as they began, they're so full of joy, lots of pain, lots of hurt. But they just kept serving. So I want to encourage you, place yourself in a situation where you can serve. And so I want to take a moment, and I want you to pray. Um. Right now, there's a spot. So this is actually, this isn't me just saying to do something and you're not doing it. Um, I want you to pray and, and ask just the Father, that His Spirit would make some names known to you right now and just write them down of people that you can begin serving. Maybe it's one name, maybe it's a dozen names. Maybe it's one family, maybe it's a dozen families. But I just want you to pray to say, Father, who could I begin serving? Because some of you are going, am I supposed to serve everyone? Yes, but that's also impossible to one degree. And so let's just start with God. Whom would you have me begin serving? And I just want to encourage you to just write down names that come to your mind. And as you're thinking about that, let me give one illustration. So Steph and I, we moved into our community two years ago. And we love our community. It's a cute little community. Um, two communities down the road. And um, we made it intentional that when we lived there... When we moved in, we didn't want to just exist, but we wanted to get to know our neighbors. So I know the neighbors on the sides of me, across the street from me. Um, I've had them into my house. I've been into their house. They've been, now we kind of work into each other's garages and all that kind of stuff. Um, gone camping with them. We're meeting each other's needs. Um, we've been able to serve them. We've given money to people down the street from us. Um, I've talked to the uh, maintenance guy that kind of leads all the maintenance within our area. And so I said, hey, anytime you need work, just 
Just let me know. And I have people that will help also, and that means you. I volunteer you a lot, just so you know. Um, not a lot of people take me up on it. And I talked to our president of the community association, and I saw her one day, and I was like, hey, if you need help, let me know. She kind of looked at me like maybe I was on drugs or something. Because she's like, people don't ask me if they can help. I'm like, no, really, whatever you got, just let me know and I'll do it. And she kind of, you go and look, are you on drugs? Like, it's just a little closer looking at the, if my eyes are dilated. I was like, no, I'm really like, you know, open-eyed here. Really, whatever you want, I'll do. So she came to my house the other day and she said, hey, Easter's coming up. We need someone to do the Easter egg hunt and to host it and to just run the entire thing. I was like, great, so th- you will be involved in this one. I was like, no problem, I got people, and that's you, and so I was like, what we're going to do is, I mean, we're going to have the most hot chocolate, and the most chocolate, and the most eggs, and we're going to have the best Easter egg hunt there ever was, and we're just going to use that time to get to know more families, get to know more people, get to know more stories, so that we can love them and share the gospel with them. Um, So that's one way that we've done it. It's been hard. It's not been easy. It's not been fast. We're two years into it now. Um... I haven't won anyone to Christ yet, um, but we're just loving on people and taking steps in our community. I just want to encourage you, it, it just starts with taking steps. So begin praying about who God has placed in your area. So number three or something, I don't know, listen, I think it's four, listen to the stories of those around you. To be a good missionary, we need to listen. We need to listen. Why are they here? Why do they live where they do? Why do they have kids? How do they have kids? Why do they have the work that they're at? Get to know them. Um, and again, I feel like I say this a lot. Invite them over for meals. When you eat with people, guards go down. When you laugh with people, um, friendships begin to be established. Uh, it might take more than one meal. That's okay. Eating is fun. We all do it. It's necessary. Um, take them out for coffee if you can, or, or meet them in different places. Uh, but I encourage you, uh, meals is a great way to get to know people. As you get to know people, it's going to be messy. You're going to see how messed up they are. And guess what? You're going to see how messed up you are. But what's neat is as they see how messed up you are, they're also going to see how you pray and how you depend upon the church and how you depend upon God's grace. And they're going to keep going. You know, they keep going through all these tough things, but somehow this thing they call faith and grace and church seems to keep helping them. And then they're going to do what we learn about in 1 Peter chapter 3, where people are going to ask you about your faith and we're to always be prepared to have an answer for our faith. So I want to encourage you to begin listening to people. Um, serving others is going, to cost, is going to cost us. We're going to have to rearrange our schedules. It's going to make us vulnerable. When the good Samaritan put the guy on his donkey, he became more vulnerable at that moment. He wasn't moving as fast. No longer is he sitting on, stop of it, on top of his donkey where he has a better chance against someone attacking him. He's going slower, and he's walking alongside him, the donkey. When we serve, there's going to be sacrifice. In fact, I will say this. If your serving does not cost you anything, you're not serving out of a love for God. If your serving doesn't cost you anything, if it doesn't cost you to rearrange schedules, if it doesn't cost you money, time, resource, energy, probably not out of a real love for them and out of a love for God. Now, admittedly, sometimes we don't have time to stop for everyone. Admittedly, there are times. But our serving should be characterized also by sacrifice because Christ came and sacrificed for us. Lastly, go and do in the power of the Spirit. Those are my last ones, go and do. So I watched a movie a few weeks ago called We Bought a Zoo. Anyone see that movie? Such a good movie. That's a pretty good movie. It's by Matt Damon. Um, but it's a pretty cute family movie. Get, they buy a zoo. The title's pretty helpful. And um, one of the things the, the, the father says to his son at one point is sometimes we just need 20 seconds of courage. We just need 20 seconds of courage. And what I find is that the hardest part is sometimes beginning the conversation with our neighbor, with our coworker, um, establishing a, a relationship with them. And so I want to encourage you, just pray and say, Father, just give me 20 seconds. Give me 20 seconds of courage. 
that I would actually walk up to them and, God, I don't even know what I'm going to say, but just help me not to sound totally unintelligible and help something somewhat functional and logical to come out, and may they just see that I love them. And I just want to encourage you to pray that way. Not praying that you have strength for 20 seconds, but that God strengthens you for at least 20 seconds. And what I promise you is you're going to see doors beginning to be opened. And you're going to see people look at you wondering if you're on drugs because somehow you're now interested in them and actually wanting to be involved in their life and love on them. The good Samaritan we have is not so that we are the good Samaritan. The good Samaritan is that we know that Christ is the good Samaritan and his spirit lives in us that we would serve all who we come across into contact with. And the good news is you're going to come across people that their needs are way too big for you. Guess what? You're part of a larger family. And there's no need too big for the large family of Christ. I promise you this. You bring any need of your friend, neighbor, whoever. You bring it here, we will meet that need, or we'll be a process in helping meet that need. There is not a need that you have, you will come across, we cannot be a part of in meeting. And that's what it is to be a large church. That's what it is to be a part of a large family. So I want to encourage you, go. Don't think about your resources. Think about God's resources. His are unlimited. Let's pray as the team is going to come back and lead us in worship and as we have an opportunity to now give out of an expression of our worship and thankfulness to God. Our Father, we come to you. And you are a good God. God, I pray um, that right now that where there is pride in this room, that God, you would remove it, where some of us are looking at excuses for why we can't, why we cannot serve, on excuses on why um, this doesn't apply to us. I pray your spirit just work in our hearts right now and humble us. May we see that you are sufficient and that you have given us your son to perfectly serve us and that his spirit now lives in us, that we would be able to serve others and that we would serve others imperfectly, demonstrating our need for you. And that as we serve, people would be encountering your love. So Father, be with us. As we go out of this room tonight, Lord, help us be encouraged that you are with us, that we would serve. Not out of a way to earn our salvation, to pay back our salvation, but out of thankfulness, out of joy that we are saved, that we are your sons and daughters, and that we go as the expression of our faith to love others. Be with us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen.